0: Just want to be clear and uh, if you haven't heard, if you don't know, we are dealing with some very sensitive subjects this morning, Uh, very uh, hard issues um, having to do with human sexuality among other things. So if you have um, children especially that aren't ready for that, that you don't want to be a part of that, now's the time to let them go back to be with the children's church. It is with much fear and trembling
1: that I stand here this morning. Um,
0: I don't know how to preface this other than that this has been the heaviest message I've ever dealt with in my life. It doesn't mean it's going to be the best. It doesn't mean it's going to be the most complete. We're going to cover a lot of ground, and not every question is going to be answered this morning. I can promise you that. But by the grace of God, we are what we are, Um, and we are at this point of this letter, and God has something for us in it. So, who, if you have children or have had children in the past, raise your hand. That was really a setup because, like, sometimes when we sing, you don't raise your hand. I was just seeing who could. Just playing, just just playing, y'all. You ever found yourself in this situation with your child, especially a smaller child, you've got them by the hand and they want to go one way and you don't want them to go that way for various reasons. Maybe you're crossing the road and they're trying to go back out into the road and you're holding their hand and they're pulling away from you. Maybe it's at the top of a set of stairs and they want to go down the stairs and you're not going down the stairs and you're afraid that they might fall down the stairs. could be a thousand different things. Their desire and your desire for them is opposite. It's conflicting. And I think of Asa, two years old, who it's real hard to communicate with sometimes. Sometimes he busts out a sentence or two in succession. I'm going, what? (laughs) Who's this person? But he's pulling against me and he wants to go this way. And I'm saying, no, we've got to go this way. What's best for you is not that way. What's best for you is this way. And He's pulling against me. At what point, out of love, do I let Him go His way? And if I do, what's going to happen? As He's pulling against me and I'm pulling against Him, if I let go, what's going to happen? He's going to fall and He's going to get hurt probably what we're dealing with this morning. It's exactly its exactly what we're dealing with, but not exactly. Um, yeah, I said that. I'll write that down. <coughs> if you would, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We will be looking at verses 18 through 32 today, and I'm not the type of preacher, teacher who enjoys big passages. I like three or four or five verses that I can really dig into and Parse verbs and look up definitions and give real meticulous this 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 leads to this It's not what we're doing today. we don't have time for that. <clears throat> We've got a big chunk of hard scripture today, and I'm not saying it to discourage you um, I'm just setting the table for you up front. This is not a this is not easy. Just I, I really appreciate what Hamlet said this morning. This morning we're gonna we're gonna run up against some hard truth, and that's good. I hope that it will break us. I hope that it will restructure us <clears throat> wherever we are on the political or religious spectrum. Pray that this truth would restructure us all individually and corporately this morning. <coughs> Let me read the passage, and then we'll pray. It's really small, and if you can't see that, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Hold on. Let's stand as we read the Word out of respect to it. (coughs) And I'm going to start over with that. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, And we ask that this morning by the power of Your Spirit that You would sanctify us in that truth. Set us apart for Your glory by applying the truth of this truth to our lives. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be subject to You. Help us, Holy Spirit, to learn from You. Break us to pieces, God. And put us back together in the image of Your Son as we look at Your Word and we ask it in Jesus' name. Be seated. <clears throat> I haven't been here for two weeks, so three weeks ago we looked at the opening, the introduction of the book of Romans, <clears throat> and we looked at this outline as the overall outline for the book of Romans. And what we're going to look at today is still in this first section. Uh, Point one of the overall outline of Romans is sin, the need for being right with God. What we established in that message was that the theme of this book is being right with God. The first message out of the book, Andrew brought us and talked about the gospel, what the gospel is, the very content of it, the gospel of God. And last week, Hamlet brought the message, uh, which would have been verses, that would have been verses one through seven that Andrew brought. And uh, Hamlet preached on uh, verses 8 through 17 last week. And in that passage, (coughs) excuse me, the Holy Spirit said that he wanted Paul, that Paul was speaking, the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul, so God speaking through Paul as an apostle. Paul said he wanted to see the Romans and share the gospel with them. And then he said that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And then he said that those who believe and who are righteous will live their life how? The righteous man shall live by what? Faith, which is a prevailing theme of this book. The righteousness of God, how to be right with God, and that the righteous man will live by faith. <clears throat> so, so far, in those three messages, things have been pretty doggone, cordial, and encouraging, right? Paul's saying, hey, it's me, it's Paul. Hey, love you guys. Can't wait to see you. Want to share the gospel with you. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. To all who believe, the righteous man shall live by faith. And everybody's feeling, woo, this is going to be a good letter. But in our text today, the Holy Spirit through Paul takes a decidedly serious turn. And in this turn, God Himself fixes his gaze and the gaze of the readers of this book to the dire situation that the human race finds itself in as sinners who have chosen sin and reaped the serious consequences of it now our outline for this passage <clears throat> will look like this <coughs> sorry couldn't get three points into it i had to pull five out of it um I am an overachiever. I've had two weeks to work on it, so I'm, you know. Romans 1, 18-32, the outline for our message is going to go this way. Point 1, the revelation of God. Point 2, the rebellion of man. Point 3, the reaction of God. Point 4, the results of wrath. And finally, our application, which is point 5, the response of the church. Now, the way this is going to work... We're going to look at the first four points by working through the text, not necessarily in order. We're not going to work straight through the text which is my modus operandi. We're going to do a little different to match up to these points and I'm not trying to cram the passage into my outline. I just feel like it's important to see what preceded what. (coughs) So we'll go through the text seeing which verses and parts of verses fit into the categories mentioned in the points. And then we'll look at our what our response should be to the truths that we have that we have had revealed to us today. Now, our first point is the revelation of God. And what we're going to be looking at, <coughs> excuse me, are verses 19 and 20. So we're not starting with 18. What I want us to see here is the fact that this is what happened first in this passage. Though it's not mentioned first, this happened first. The first thing that happened in this progression was that God revealed Himself. So point one is the revelation of God. And these two verses explain that point. Let me read them. You can read them in front of you. You can read them up here. Whatever is most convenient for you. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So what we see here is what people would refer to as natural revelation. This is the truth that God has revealed Himself in different ways, including in creation, so that everybody who has been created and everybody who has lived in a created world is clearly held accountable for knowing God. Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Now the question that I would ask you is, who is them? In your Bibles, look back at verse 18 so we can explain who them is. And we'll cover verse 18 more fully in the rebellion of man and the wrath of God points. But look back at verse 18 so we can see who them is. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The them in verse 19 refers back to the men in verse 18. Is that clear? We're on the same page? <coughs> is that clear? Them is men. And ladies, don't think you're going to get off scot-free here because men means created beings, okay? So, the them is the men. So, here in verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them, plain to men, plain to created human beings, all of them. To whom has God shown these things? And the answer is all of them. Right? Well, yes, it is right. Just see. (laughs) (coughs) It has been plain to them, all of them. Now, verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse.
1: That's pretty obvious
0: in what it's saying, isn't it? I mean, that's not code. That's not deep theological stuff. It's just saying when we're looking at the revelation of God, these two verses tell us that God has plainly revealed Himself to every created person from the beginning of time. And will continue to do so as long as there are created people and a creation in which they live in. Right? He has announced Himself through creation, and said, here I am. And to quote the ghost of Christmas present from the Christmas story, come and know me better, man. That's what creation is saying. Here I am. Look at me. Come and know me better, man. All men, all women... His invisible attributes have been clearly perceived and they are without excuse for not knowing God. Who is without excuse for not knowing God? Everyone. So God has revealed Himself. How has man responded? That's our second point. The rebellion of man. Okay, so the point itself gives away the answer to the question how has man responded, but let's look at the text that referred to it. Now, you've got a partial verse, a section of verses, another verse, and then another verse. So I'm going to read all of that together. Don't be confused by that, please. Try to stick with me. What we're trying to point out through these verses is the rebellion of man. This is how they responded to God's revelation. Who? Everyone. Okay? Okay. Incredibly important that you understand that. Incredibly. The rebellion of man. Starting with verse 18, part B. How did they respond to God's revelation? Who by their unrighteousness suppressed the truth. Then verse 21. For although they knew God... Who? For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Okay, I'm going to ask you again. Who is this passage talking about? We saw in the last point that God had revealed Himself to everyone. And yes, I am belaboring a point. So let's stay consistent with the text and keep that mindset here. Those who God revealed Himself to are the ones who are rebelling. Every one of them. This passage Is not about a select group of really bad people who snort, coke, and punch old people. The Holy Spirit will continue to build this case all the way through chapter three, verses ten, and chapter three chapter three, verse ten, and chapter three, verse twenty three, that say, None is righteous, no, not one. And for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the doctrine of total depravity. And y'all, if you've been around this place very long, you've probably heard that a few times. And I think we run the risk of belaboring depravity to the point that it overwhelms us. We'll see. There is no one who has ever been created who was not caught in sin's grip outside of Jesus Christ. That's not in my text, but I need to make that clear. Outside of Christ, there is no one who has ever been created who wasn't caught in sin's grip. David would rightly lament in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And Jeremiah would later describe the human condition when he said in Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Human beings are born in sin and affected by sin without exception. And what does that look like? Look at these verses in our second point. They do things that are unrighteous and in doing so they suppress the truth. The word suppress means to hold back, to detain, to retain, to restrain, to hinder the course or progress of. So as they commit unrighteous deeds, they hinder the course or the progress of truth with those unrighteous deeds. They know God, but they don't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they become futile in their thinking. That word futile means vain, empty, or foolish. So their thinking is vain, empty, and foolish. But it's not just their thinking. Their hearts become darkened, which implies that what is missing? Darkness is the absence of what? All right, y'all are doing... That was great. Thanks. so their foolish hearts are darkened which means a lack of light who's the light of the world who else
1: is the light of the world we are in church
0: good answer their hearts become darkened which implies that the light is missing they claim to be wise But in doing so, they become fools. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. God is committed to His glory. That's pretty important too. God is committed to His own glory. But these men, all us men, exchange that glory, that beautiful, awesome, joy-inducing glory for images and not images of Him, that would be bad enough. But for images of men, images of birds, images of animals and creeping things, they would rather know and enjoy created things, even down to creeping things, than know God in His fullness and glory. Now you think this is not about us? Really? We worship actors and athletes and singers and sales and cars and cash. And, 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 Meaning we ascribe such worth to these things that we enjoy them rather than enjoying the fullness and beauty of who God is. Yes, church. Yes, us. This is referring to us unquestionably. And it goes on to say that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator and that they did not see fit to acknowledge God, which means they just couldn't fit it into their busy calendars to have a precise and correct knowledge of the One who created them and revealed Himself to them. Scan those words again. Suppress did not honor or give thanks, futile in their thinking, foolish hearts, fools, exchanged glory for images, exchanged truth for a lie, worshipped and served the creature, and did not see fit to acknowledge God. This is the rebel man. I see you, God, and I'd rather worship a bug than you. I don't see it fit to acknowledge you. I will go my own way. I will do my own thing.
1: Seems pretty smart, doesn't it? Now,
0: how does God react? Having revealed Himself and having had the rebel man rebel against him, God does what a holy God should do against his rebel creatures. He pours out his wrath against them. These verses are terrifying and debilitating. And they are supposed to be. Look at these verses. We're going to look at verse 18, verse 24, and verse 26. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. God's wrath. How many messages have you heard about the wrath of God in your life? A couple? It's not a popular subject in Christian circles or non-Christian circles. And if it is a popular subject, especially in Christian circles, it's probably popular among self-inflated Pharisees who see it as those sinners getting what they deserve. It's viewed as God pouring out fire and brimstone and hating fags and striking down those blasphemers. But that's not the way God's wrath works in the here and now. Not in this passage. Let's look at it here. Look at the tense of the verb. You're like, I can't see the tense of the verb. I'm going to help you. You can see it in verse 18. For the wrath of God, what's it say? Is revealed... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now if you were just guessing, what's the tense of that verb? Is it past tense? Is it future tense?
1: Is revealed.
0: You all are sitting. I am standing. The chair is there. What's the tense? Present. It's present tense. So let me read that again, keeping that in mind. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. Is revealed is a present... Now here's what you don't see. Passive third-person verb, which means it is happening in the present and it is happening to a third person who is not doing it himself. Is that clear? If it's not, please say no. That's not clear. Okay. It is happening now in the present, and it is happening to somebody who's not doing it to themselves. So present tense, passive means somebody is being acted upon, and that person is not the person who is doing it, but the person that is having it happening to them. With me? First person would be, I'm doing it to myself. God pouring the wrath of God out upon Himself. Has that ever happened? The good news is yes, it has. That's not what what is happening here. God is pouring out His wrath upon somebody else that's not Himself. It's happening now. These people are being acted upon outside of themselves. Present tense, third person passive. So the wrath of God is happening now, being shown against people who are not doing it to themselves. God is doing it to them. God is wrathing them. To make up a word that's not a word. God is wrathing them. Sorry about that one. Who's translating? Sorry about that, Andrew. You don't have wrathing in there. Trust me, it's not. You got to spell it out. I can't do it. <coughs> God is wrathing them. i got to say it again so he can go forget it. The word for wrath is orge, O-R-G-E. Now what's it sound like? What's it sound like? Sounds like orgy, doesn't it? Well, that's where we get our word orgy. Okay, The Greek word orge, O-R-G-E. And it literally means anger exhibited in punishment. Anger exhibited in punishment. Yeah, that means something different in our language. So God is angry and is showing that by punishing those who are rebelling against Him. Now what does that anger, that punishment look like? Here's where things go differently than I thought they might go, than we probably think they might go. Look at the verses again. Look at verses 24, 26, and 28. All of those verses contain the phrase, God gave them up. It's what theologians call judicial abandonment. Now what does that mean? R.C. Sproul paints the picture this way. This is a quote from R.C. Sproul. (coughs) The worst thing that can happen to sinners is to be allowed to go on sinning without any divine restraints. At the end of the New Testament in the book of Revelation, when the description of the last judgment is set forth, God says, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still that's romans uh, revelation twenty two eleven still quoting Spro here. God gives people over to what they want. He abandons them to their sinful impulses and removes his restraints, saying in essence, "If you want to sin, go ahead and sin." This is what theologians call judicial abandonment. God, in dispensing his just judgment, abandons the impenitent sinner
1: to their own sins.
0: So, God pouring out his wrath and giving them over means that God gave them what they wanted, and what they wanted was sin, and that sin is the worst possible thing for them. Standing in contrast to God himself, who is the very best we could ever hope for. Asa pulling away from me and me letting go. Gravity takes over, doesn't it? The word for gave and gave over is paradidomai. P A R A D I D O M I. Paradidomai. Now listen to what this means. Gave and gave them over. To give into the hands of another, to give over into one's power or use. To deliver up one to custody, to be judged, condemned, punished, scourged, tormented, put to death, to permit or to allow. So the picture here is that God reveals His wrath by giving over people to the power, the custody, the punishment of what they chose. God handed them over to their own sins. And these passages portray those sins as the lusts of their hearts, impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, dishonorable passions, a debased mind, doing what ought not to be done. Three times Paul says people exchanged the truth of God for lies and three times he says God gave them over. And He gave them over to practices that manifested His judgment against them in this life, as people reject God's standards and afflict themselves by their disobedience, their sin becomes their punishment. That's what God gave them up to. That's how God wrathed against them. And that might not sound too bad in contrast to, say, being zapped by a lightning bolt, which is what we think of when we think of the wrath of God. I'll strike you down. But let's look at the next point to see how effective it is and how terrifying it is. The results of wrath. God reveals Himself. Man rebels. God pours out His wrath. And now, what is the result? Let's look at the results of wrath. What does the text say? And we're going to read what's up there. Again, there's partials here and there. And then there's a bigger section. I'm going to read it as it is up there. Let me just read it. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they, pass legis- uh, they give approval to those who practice them.
1: Sorry. Be careful, though.
0: I'm coming for you, too. <clears throat> Once men are given over to their sins, all hell breaks loose in their lives. And that hell looks like the opposite of God's design. Notice that the first and dominant things that the Holy Spirit points out through Paul is homosexual activity. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. Keep in mind that God has given them over at this point. That's what the wrath was. And the result is contrary to nature in this example. Women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And if there's any doubt as to what that means, the rest explains it. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. Now let's be clear. Are you ready? Here's where we're going to really dig in. This passage does not say God made them homosexual. It doesn't even use the word homosexual. The Holy Spirit says that these people, men and women, who had known God through God revealing Himself to them since creation, rebelled and saw it fit to not acknowledge God, and God let them have it their way, and they chose to act contrary to nature itself. Listen to me, please. This is not a passive-aggressive means of railing against homosexuals who rant and say, God made me this way. This is about the truth that when we are left to our own devices, when we walk according to our perverse sinful desires, there is no limit to the depravity we will engage in. Even going as far as defying our own nature to rebel against who we naturally are as male and female. To quote Sproul again, when we become involved in homosexual practices, we are not only sinning against God, but against the nature of things. All the debates today, and this is still Sproul, all the debates today about whether homosexual behavior is acquired or inherently genetic can be answered here in this text. The Word of God says that such behavior is not natural. It is against nature as God has created it. End of quote. Now we will address this particular issue further and more particularly in the application points, but we need to move on and finish this point out first. Homosexual sin is in the lead here, but it's not the end of what the results are when God pours out His wrath and leaves us to our own devices. Look at the rest of the list starting in verse 29. (coughs) They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, before you jump on those participating in homosexual sin too soon and too angrily, how about the rest of these actions and attitudes that point to the result of our rebellion and God's wrath? Anybody envious recently?
1: Anybody deceitful recently? Gossip much? Anybody boastful? Anybody disobedient to parents?
0: Foolish? Anybody? This list of other sins is not exhaustive, but it is representative of how our lives look when God gives us over to our sinful wishes. Maybe you don't find the same sex attractive, but do you use your phone for a gossip hub? Do you look down on others and lift yourself up when you're comparing yourself to them? Are you jealous of or do you want what other people have? These are sinful acts and it's who we are in our fallen state and when we are left to our own, we choose them. We run to them. We prefer them over knowing, serving, and loving our Creator. Chapter 2, will deal with this more completely, so we'll move on from this from right now. But know this, let he who stands take heed lest he fall. The second you think you're better than someone else or that you'd never do what so-and-so did, you are in grave danger of falling into the very same sin or some other sin that you don't even have on your radar. The Holy Spirit is pointing us all to a depravity that has affected every single one of us. Don't ever forget that while we're on earth sojourning to heaven. Christian. Now we've covered a lot of ground. We've seen the revelation of God, the rebellion of man, the reaction of God and the results of that wrath, which leads us to our last point. The response of the church. What does all of this mean for us now? First, I want to testify to the amazing relevancy of the Word of God. In our culture today, we need a clear word on what is sin and what is not. In particular, our nation and our world need to hear that homosexuality is a sin. Our text today paints that picture very clearly. Whether it is man with man or woman with woman, it is against the will of God and the nature of man to participate in homosexual acts. Tim Keller says it this way, The Bible is clear both in the Old and New Testaments that active homosexual sex as a settled, unrepentant pattern of behavior is indicative of an attitude of rejection of Jesus' lordship and leaves people outside His kingdom. Now, he references in that quote oh, this passage, First Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's not the end of Keller's quote but I'll finish it in a minute. But first, please hear me say that the clear teaching of the Bible is that homosexual acts are sinful. Along with that, also hear me say that there is a difference between acts and temptations. The Bible is clear that we're all tempted in many ways, in different ways. Being tempted is not sin. If that was true, Jesus sinned because it says that he was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. There is a difference between temptation and actually committing the act. Anybody ever been tempted in this room? 12 of you. Great. I have been tempted. Being tempted is not sin, but doing what we are tempted to do is sin. I don't doubt, me, Jason Moore, this morning, I don't doubt that there are people who are tempted by homosexual behavior. I have never wrestled with that myself, but that doesn't mean that others don't. We as the church have done a completely awful job of equipping anyone to combat homosexual temptation. We think the temptation itself is so bad that we shouldn't even mention it. And we are wrong for that. We are wrong. We need a hearty and healthy plan in place, so that if one of our members, one of our friends, one of our children come to us and say, I'm being tempted by homosexual thoughts, then we can say, this is what you can and should do to combat those temptations according to Scripture. This is the community that we can plug you in that will give you the support that you need to combat those temptations. We can say this is what you can and should do to combat those temptations, just like we would if they said they were tempted with gluttony or pride or heterosexual temptation. I wholeheartedly commend to you books and video teachings of these two folks here. Sam Alberry, and there's a link there. I'll, I'll put these links on the Facebook page. And Rosaria Butterfield. both of whom have either battled these temptations or were delivered out of them. Notice I said were either or. I wholeheartedly commend to you the books and videos up here. Homosexual sin is not the unpardonable sin. And we need to speak grace and deliverance in the name of Jesus to those who wrestle with those temptations. Instead of putting your hand over your mouth in horror, Reach your hand out in love and open your mouth to share the gospel of God's amazing grace to those who struggle with or revel in homosexual sin. And why? Now I'll finish the Keller quote. After saying the Bible is clear both in the Old and New Testaments that active homosexual sex as a settled, unrepentant pattern of behavior is indicative of an attitude of rejection of Jesus' lordship and leaves people outside of His kingdom and referencing the passage in references to the passage in 1 Corinthians 6:19, Keller concludes his thought by saying though never outside his reach. and then referencing 1 Corinthians 6:11. So let me give you the whole quote and then the whole scripture passage. The Bible is clear, Keller says, both in the Old and New Testaments, that active homosexual sex as a settled, unrepentant pattern of behavior is indicative of an attitude of rejection of Jesus' lordship and leaves people outside His kingdom, though never outside His reach. And then the next verse after this.
1: Such were some of us. But we
0: were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Don't ever stop with verse 10. Don't ever sit on your high horse and look down at the person who struggles with something that you don't struggle with and say, I would never do that. That's gross. Such
1: were some of you.
0: Which leads us to our other application point. And after this, we'll be finished. The first application point was we want to be clear in saying that homosexuality, homosexual acts are sins. Living a homosexual lifestyle is sin. But we don't want to give up hope on the homosexual or the heterosexual or the liar or the drunk or the reviler because we were the same place. We were all under
1: the wrath of God.
0: But application point two is this church. If you are a believer this morning, if you are a Christian, rejoice in your salvation. After reading the bleak outlook that our Romans passage gives us of man, it would be easy to despair and feel helpless and hopeless either as a believer or a non-believer. We may think, well, if I'm that bad off, if I'm totally depraved and under God's wrath already, why even bother trying to get to God or to please Him? but did you hear verse 11? And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, and such were some of you, but... I could really ruminate and pontificate on the size of that conjunction. But suffice it to say, that the but in that verse is monumental. Christian, you were unrighteous. You were sexually immoral. You were an idolater. You were an adulterer. You were a homosexual. You were a thief. You were greedy. You were a drunkard. You were a reviler. You were a swindler, but God saved you anyhow in spite of you. In spite of yourself. As bad as the bad news is that God has given us over to our sin in His wrath, the good news of the gospel is even better. Scripture says where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Rejoice in that. Ephesians 2. You might want to flip there because I think this is going to be... Nah, it's not too small, but he does back there probably can't. We're going to finish with this. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 13. To highlight this, to highlight the depth of our depravity before Christ. And the reaction of God to that depravity, which we saw in Romans, is wrath. And that's what we deserve. But what does God do? being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You think you woke up one day and figured this out? You think that one day God relented His wrath and said, I'm going to give you some space so you can work on this. No. No. (laughs) If he left us to ourselves, we would still be them.
1: But he didn't.
0: He didn't. He should have. He could have. And he would have been completely just. And this morning we could be talking about us with them. But in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off, who had been dead in your sins and trespasses, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were dead. You were by nature a child of wrath, but God did something about it. And that something that He did was grace, unmerited favor. You were no better, you are no better than anyone else. And God in His infinite wisdom, love and grace said, I'll take you and I will set my love upon you and I will make you new and I will relinquish my wrath upon you because I poured out my wrath against my Son in your place and I wholeheartedly satisfied that wrath as I crushed Him on the cross.
1: You think you deserve that? No. But God does. Christian, rejoice in your salvation. It is glorious. And nothing you could ever do on your own. You were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest.
0: Rejoice in that. Non-Christian today, if you sit in this building, you don't know why you're here. What in the world? Who are these freaks? They talk about homosexuality every week? No, we don't. We do talk about sin every week. And every week we want to remind ourselves and you as a non-believer that you were born into sin and you were without hope
1: in the world. But God,
0: God today calls out to you and says, I have a better way than the sinful path that you're walking. Come, confess your sins, trust that when I crucified Christ, when God poured out His wrath upon Jesus Christ on the cross in First century Palestine, the wrath was satisfied if we will place our faith in that finished work. If we do not place our faith in that finished work, eternal destruction awaits you. And it is just because you have rebelled against God that He's made a way so that you can be right with Him. And that way is at the cross, at the cross, surrender my life. I'm in awe of you. Where your love ran red and my sin washed white, I'm in awe of you, Jesus. Come to the cross this morning. Find somebody here that you know believes that and say, I know I'm a sinner and I need salvation. What's that look like? That's what we're here for. So come. Come to the cross. And Christian, Rejoice in your salvation and offer that salvation to everybody you possibly can. Paul would say at the beginning, I make it my ambition, not the end of Romans, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel to those who have never heard. That's what love would have us do. Let's pray. God, we live in a world not so unlike the world that the Apostle Paul lived in. And the same Holy Spirit that spoke to him and through him then speaks to us now and says,
1: You are by nature children of wrath, but God.
0: Holy Spirit in this building, in this moment, convict us of our sins, believer or non-believer. Draw us to the cross of Christ. And may we as Christians never, ever, ever lift ourselves above those who are non-Christians. Whatever their sin may be, may we reach out in love and may we share the love that's been shown to us through the gospel with a passion And a rejoicing that says, I was by nature a child of wrath, but God poured His love out of me. Holy Spirit, have Your way. Do Your work that only You can do. We trust You to do it. And may we be faithful to join You in. it. As we sit here and eat, we thank You for the food that we're about to eat. We thank You for the time we have. Help us to make the most of it and give You glory by our eating, by our drinking, by our speech, by our thoughts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, have a great day. Enjoy our time together
1: as we eat.